happening. Let's pray. Father, um, we are just excited about what you have in store for us today. God, we want to know more about you, Father, because in knowing more about you, we know more about ourselves because you created us for yourself and you created us in your image, God. And um, what a profound thing to say that you would um, create us to reflect you to a world in need, God. And so we just want to learn more about who we are supposed to be, Father. And God, we just pray that you would just be manifest here this morning. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, let's get started. We're going to begin today in Romans 8. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. Uh, we've been talking about the past few weeks, this is lesson number 8, I think, about Paul's theology. And last week, I believe, Scott Rowling spoke about Jesus as being fully God. Well, today I want to talk about Jesus being fully present in our lives. And to look at that, we want to look at what Paul wrote about it in Romans 8, 9 through 11. Here's what he writes. You, however, are not in the flesh, and you, of course, as you all, every single person listening, all of you, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. For if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit, which lives within you. Throughout the entirety of Paul's writings, you see this kind of idea that I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Which is this really weird concept that God, who came in the form of man to save us from our sin, would now somehow inhabit our lives. How is it that Christ lives in us? And why is it important? What does he mean by participatory language? Do I not live my life on my own anymore? Well, it's kind of like what Paul writes in Ephesians 5. If you have your little handout, I think Mark wrote it in there. You can turn it there, you can turn it in your Bible. But I want to give you this, this picture. And we'll begin in verse 23 of Ephesians 5. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ, also Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her in the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. What I want you to see here is that Paul is introducing a very interesting concept. Inasmuch as when you are married, there's an increased intimacy in a relationship between a man and a woman, so too, when you become a follower of Christ and the same Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead comes and indwells you, you now have a special relationship with Christ. It's not just a shepherd over sheep. There's an intensive level of intimacy. And here's the, the cool thing. You were created for intimacy. Think about this. Think about the Trinity for a second. 
It's really a, a complex idea, the Trinity, the fact that God is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are distinct, yet they are one. And before creation, before time began, God was content in and of himself because each of the three persons of the Trinity had an intimate relationship, loving each other, communicating with each other, experiencing grace toward each other. They didn't need anything. And then God, because of his joy and because of his goodness, decided to express himself in this new way, creation. And in that, he created a special creation, the apex of creation, humanity, in which he created them in the image of himself. And so you were created with this desire, this need for intimacy, because you were created in the image of God. And so that's why a man looks for a wife, because in so doing, you have a relationship that now reflects the relationship that exists between the Trinity. And while it's not perfect, it helps you a little bit understand why you're created and what is expected from you and your relationship with God. Because all of our relationships here are meant to reflect a relationship hereafter. Which is pretty interesting. And so now you have this intimate relationship with Christ, this Christ living within you. Well, for what purpose? It's kind of like this. How many of you are familiar with this symbol? Right? Okay, when I was a kid, I was uh, addicted to Saturday morning cartoons, and uh, one of them was Superman. I love Superman. Um, But Superman is just an ordinary human being or ordinary alien being until he steps into our universe. Why is that? The what? The sun. Right? Any other planet on Krypton, he's just this normal guy, right? But something about the sun being in this universe gives him a weird power. And so no longer is he just this regular Joe, he's now a superhero. All because he's in the presence of the sun. And the same thing I think is true with us, for those of us who are in Christ. Because no longer are we normal people, no longer are we simple Uh, human beings, we have a special relationship with Christ that elevates us and gives us a new way of life, purpose, a calling on our life that is empowered by Christ living within us. Christ calls each of us to something. He calls all of us to be a part of the church, all of us to go and reach the world, all of us to go and proclaim his good news, all of us to express the glory of God to all nations. He calls all of us to something specific, though, as well. Something only you and you alone can do. But he does not call you to do it in and of yourself. He calls you to do something spectacular, but he also supplies himself to empower you to be able to accomplish that which you cannot do on your own. And so just like Superman, you've been transplanted, you've been impacted by the sun, S-O-N, and now you are supposed to live in a completely different way of life, on a new level of life, empowering people to fulfill the kingdom of God and the call of God upon your life. Pretty incredible. All right, well, how do we get here? Why is it necessary for Christ to come and live within us? Well, I want to kind of draw two conclusions from the passages that you see on the screen. The first one is Romans 1. I'm going to use a lot of scripture today because I want you to see what I'm saying is not, I'm not making it up. There's actually evidence for this. 
Romans 1. We'll begin in verse 18. For God's wrath. And let us not forget that God is a wrathful God. A lot of times, um, especially in today's culture, there's this elevation of a certain attribute of God in that God is love. Right? You've heard that a lot. God is loving. And there's kind of this wave, especially in my generation, of people who want to excuse a variety of things because God is love. But we also must remember that inasmuch as God is love, he is also righteous. And as much as God is righteous, he is also just. And as much as he is just, he is also wrathful. To elevate one attribute of God over another is to make God an unbalanced God. And if he's going to be the perfect God, the highest God, the greatest possible being God, that all of his attributes have to be equal. Because if there is one greater, then that means there is a deficiency in another, which cannot be. God is wrathful. And his wrath is still very present. We have to be aware of that. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, what truth? Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. From the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they, all people, all mankind, knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over and the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You and I all were created in the image of God for a purpose. We weren't just created to be. We were created with a purpose. Why? Because God designed it that way. And if you remember, there's a story in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve forgot their purpose. And just like Paul is writing in Romans chapter 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, deciding that their own needs and their own desires were greater than that of God's proclamation over their life. Thus entered sin. And the image of God that was placed within Adam and Eve was shattered. So the image of God is like a mirror. And you and I are supposed to use that mirror to reflect to all of creation the goodness of this God that we serve. Yet, when Adam and Eve sinned, they communicated falsely about this God. And so no longer do they reflect accurately the God they serve. They reflect actually inaccurately. They lie about this God we serve. In fact, that's exactly what we do every time we sin. Every time you and I sin, we communicate falsely about this God that we serve. And no wonder God would be wrathful at that. Think about if you are, as a believer, communicating that you are a follower of Christ and you lie to people. Well, then you're saying that the God that I serve, who redeemed me, says it's okay for me to lie to someone, which probably means that God is a liar. 
because it's okay for me to lie. On an extreme note, if you murdered someone, you're taking a life that God gave. You're communicating that God is okay with that. Which is not true. No wonder he becomes angry. Because he created us. He gave us life in order to express that to others, yet you and I consistently decide that our own needs are greater than that of God. And so we shatter that image. And you and I no longer can walk in fellowship with God. And so we are imperfect people. We are not whole. We can't do this thing on our own. So God gave us the law in order to be able to at least have some sort of fellowship with him in order to regain the relationship that God had with humanity in the beginning. But we couldn't do that. Time and time again, we fell short. And the law, even if it did work, was only good for a year. And every year had to be redone. There was no eternal sanctification in that. And so you and I were in a tough place. And Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what he says. Because of this state, you, all of you, were dead in your trespasses. Dead. Dead. Without life. Unable to do anything. Separated. Dead. D-E-A-D. Not alive. You were all dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked, according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Do you realize that same spirit, even though it might not be in you because you are in Christ, is still working today? That same idea that I want to put myself above what God wants for me, saying time and time again as Hosea's a uh, message to the Old Testament people said that, God, you are not enough for me. Still today, true. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and by nature were children under wrath. By our nature were children under wrath, as others were also. And then probably one of the greatest verses and the entire Bible, Ephesians 2, 4. You don't want to elevate one over the other, but it gives me a lot of hope. And here's what it says. But God. But. Beautiful conjunction, meaning what was before, now no longer the case. There's a change in thought. But God, who is abundant in mercy. Aren't you glad that God is abundant in mercy? Because I know just in my life, if he wasn't abundant in mercy, I would have made a good try at draining all of his mercy dry much less if we combine all of our efforts times the entirety of the world. But he's abundant in mercy. Because of his great love that he had for us, made us, what? Alive. So you were dead. What can you do about being dead? What can dead people do about being dead? What? Nothing. Why? 
because they're dead. If you're dead, you cannot make yourself alive. It's impossible. But God, who was abundant in mercy, made us alive. How? With the Messiah. Even though we were dead in trespasses, even though we were dead, by grace you were saved. He has also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works so that no man can boast, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we could walk in them. The reason this is necessary, the reason that participatory language is necessary, because, is because Paul is saying this. Outside of Christ, we are dead. Because of our decision, our choice to sin, to put our desires above that of God, we have no ability to live the life that God created us to live in the first place. We are created for more. We are created to glorify God. And instead of doing that, all of us chose to exchange that truth for a lie, thereby forfeiting our ability to live righteously. We became impure. And there was nothing that you or I could do about that on our own. So God, in his abundant mercy, sent Christ, who not only lived the perfect life that we could not live, paid the penalty for us, and then gave us this is key because we don't ever focus on we don't focus on this nearly as much. Gave us the ability to live the way we were supposed to live in the first place. I hope that gets you excited. Because you can't do it. If he didn't do it, we'd be up a creek without a paddle. It's all about him. He provided the way where there was no way. And so now you and I have the ability to do the very thing that God created us to do. What incredible truth. That's why it's necessary. Because without the participatory language, without the participatory life of Christ living within me and me living within Christ, then it's almost purposeless. Because we can't do what we were created to do. Okay. Paul kind of summarizes this idea in a in a a theme he calls recreation. And I want you to look at Genesis 2:7 and then I want you to kind of see the mirror of what happens in the writings of Paul. So hold your place in Paul's writings. And this is just the, uh, the story of the creation of man in Genesis 2. And look how God forms man in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. Okay? The first thing is that God formed the man. Then he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living thing. So there was a moment where man existed without the breath of life within him. Right? So there was a man, but he wasn't alive. Because the breath of God was not in him. Well, 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, you can just listen to it because I'm going to get there for you, says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. You see, whenever we sin, we kind of go back to that state before Christ breathed, or before God breathed the breath of life into us, where we're beings, but we don't have the breath of life within us because we are dead in sin. But when you become a follower of Christ, when you submit to the lordship of Christ, when you say, Christ, I can't do this on my own, I submit my life to you, then the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead comes into your life and resurrects your spirit in the same way that Christ was raised from the dead. And so now you are a new creation, recreated to do good works. We'll talk about later. Well, how is this so? How does Christ live within me? It's kind of a weird subject, weird topic. Is it through communion? Is that the way I get Christ within me? Is that the way Christ inhabits me through the the Lord's Supper, through the Eucharist? Well, there are many religions that say that is true. For instance, in the Catholic Church, you have this idea known as transubstantiation, which means this, that as you partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine or grape juice if you're at a Baptist church, um, you, the actual elements transform. And when they are digested, they actually become the body and blood of Christ. And not only that, that's the way that your spirit is nourished. Your spirit is kept alive by that idea. Your spirit is being fed and grown by the idea that Christ is coming within you. And that's how your spirit is grown. That's how it's kept alive. That's why, as a Catholic, you have to take communion at least once, I think maybe twice a year. Maybe just, I think it's twice a year. Twice? This twice? It was once? Just once a year? Okay. I grew up in South Louisiana, but I still don't know entirely everything. But I think it's once a year. Um, that's why you have to take it every year. So that your spirit doesn't go away. Redo it. Prince, it's, it's the idea of transubstantiation. Well, in Lutheran churches, they kind of have adjusted this idea. And it's not that the body and blood of Christ are uh, in the form of... Well, let me, let me change that. It's not as if the bread and wine become the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. Um, the actual blood and, and the bread and wine stay the same in consubstantiation. But underneath it, in, within, and throughout the bread and wine, there are elements and particles of the blood and body of Christ in there. So they don't transform. But in that there's some supernatural event in which, after being blessed, the body and blood of Christ are present in the elements in a supernatural way. So they don't transform, but the body and blood of Christ are still there in a, in a profound, powerful way. Now, you and I, as uh, members of a Baptist church, teach that the idea is symbolic. While Christ is present in a powerful way through his spirit in the idea of communion and the Lord's Supper, there is no presence, actually, of his body and blood in the elements. It's a symbol. It's an act of where, we, where we reflect upon what God has done for us. We remember him in that act. Um, but there is no spiritual growth or maintenance that comes through the act. 
Well, what is, is, it, is it possibly this idea of substance versus accident? And Mark writes about this in your, your little packet. But this is an idea that was introduced by Aristotle. And it was also kind of put into the church by Aquinas. Um, and it's properties of being. And substance is this idea that there are certain things that are essential to be characterized as a thing. So, for being a human, there are certain things that you have to have in order to be a human. Okay? Essentially, all of us being characterized as humans have certain characteristics that all of us must have in order to be a human. Well, there are also accidental things. Things that are not essential but are still part of being human. For instance, your hair color. That's not essential for you to be a human that you have blonde hair, but it could be an accidental property that as you have hair as a human being, it is blonde. Everybody got that? Okay. And so what some people have said is this, that the church is substantially, essentially in Christ, even though there is no accidental property that exhibits that to the entire world. So just by being the church, we are in Christ, even though there is no outward expression of that. But I think there's probably a flaw there because I think there are outward expressions of being in Christ. And so maybe that's not the best answer either. What about the Holy Spirit? Is Christ within us through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives? My thought would be that this is the way that Christ is present within us. Now, we want to be sure and remember that even though the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father are all God, they are distinct. But in the same way that the Holy Spirit maintained the deity of Christ in the incarnation, so too can the Holy Spirit act on Christ's behalf in us as the body of Christ. That's a big statement. You know, when Christ came in the incarnation, uh, he wasn't omnipresent anymore, right? He wasn't everywhere at once. Um, and some of his his... Um, prayers and his talks with the disciples, he revealed to us that he wasn't omniscient at that time because he didn't know how certain things would, would pass. All those things he put aside from a time while he was here on the earth. And the Holy Spirit were those things within him, through him, for him, so that he can maintain his deity because he's necessity, it's a necessity for him to be deity so that his sacrifice could have eternal impl- implications upon the entirety of the world. And the same way the Holy Spirit can act on Christ's behalf in us. Because the Spirit of God is the thing that lives within you. So the Spirit of God lives within you in the body of Christ. And so here's what happens. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be able to live the example of Christ, exemplifying to others that we are following Christ and in the life of Christ, which is a process that we call sanctification. We are growing, becoming more and more and more like Christ as we live, ultimately to be glorified in the hereafter. Okay, now let's get to the good stuff. Implications. What does this mean for my life? Well, the first thing that I want you to know is this. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, for those of you who are participating in the life that Christ has provided for you, there is, there, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for you. Sheen in Romans 8.1. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. If, 
If I were you, and I read Romans 8.1, I would be ecstatic every time I read it, almost barely able to control myself, because we have to remember, as we said before, that God is a God of wrath. And if you've read the Old Testament, His wrath is not pretty. And each of us in sin was subject to the wrath of God. But Christ, through the mercy of God, provided a way whereby we were free from that condemnation. And now, we don't live in condemnation, but we live in freedom and life. And we have the ability to have joy and purpose. What concerns me is that there are a lot of people who don't live this way. There's a lot of people who live in condemnation. Primarily because I think they haven't realized the second implication for us, that we must not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Now, I want to go to Romans 6 to show you this, because I think this is an incredible teaching uh, from Paul. Now, in this passage, uh, Paul has just described in... Um, Romans 5, how Adam introduced sin to the entirety of mankind, but in the same way Christ has introduced salvation. One man introduced sin, one man introduced salvation. And so now in Christ we have the freedom from sin. The implications of sin no longer apply to us. Well, here's what he, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Here's what he says. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may multiply? Some of the people are asking in the church in Rome, well, what if, what if we sinned more and kind of made our sin so big that when God covered it, it would just show how incredible God's grace is? Shouldn't we do that so we can show how, how big our God is, that he can cover any sin? Because we want to show God's grace to everyone and how, how incredible it is. Well, here's what Paul answers. Absolutely not. That makes no sense. Why? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Let's jump down to verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, no longer dies. Death no longer rules over him, for in that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But in that he lives, he lives to God. So you too, all of you, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's the the money verse right here. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. What kind of statement is that? I was an English major. My degree is in English lit. I love language. I love to look at language and what the implications are of language. What kind of sentence is do not let? A command. Now, there's no subject here in do not let. Or is there in a command sentence? What is, who is the subject? You. It's an understood you. You all. So is this talking to every single person in this room who is in Christ? Do 
not let. Now I want you to grasp this. I want, you to, I want you to grab hold of it and I want you to apply it to your life because I think it will transform the way you live. Too many times we excuse sin in our life because we say that we are still fallen. That even though we are in Christ, we still have the sinful nature. And so there are going to be times where we fall. Have, you, have any of you heard other people say that? Right? And so we excuse this sin in our lives. And not only that, when we sin, then we start beating ourselves up over it. And I see this in student ministry all the time. There's this kind of vicious cycle that happens. So for some of them, what happens is this. They'll come to a moment where they meet Christ in salvation and they're going to completely uh, reject their old way of life and they're going to start living in Christ. They're going to start being good. They're going to stop uh, hanging out with that old group of friends. They're going to start doing all these good things. And so their life is on this high until the moment where they mess up for the first time. And then life is horrible. And they start beating themselves up and they start saying, there's no way that I should be a Christian. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I can't be a believer anymore. What's wrong with me? And then something like a disciple now happens or some retreat happens. And they get back on fire for God and they say, okay, God, I'm I'm yours. I'm I'm finally yours again. I'm going to reject this. I'm not going to do it anymore. And then inevitably they fall and the same thing happens and they fall back down. And then summer camp happens and there's this cycle of highs and lows. And let me tell you guys, that is not the life that God has for us. It is not. Because Christ lives within you. And because of that, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now understand this. You have the ability in Christ to say no to sin. The temptations, the old nature that you used to exhibit is no longer the thing that governs you. You are no longer a person who is characterized as being sinful. In Christ, you are a person who is characterized as being in Christ. And so now, our obligation is to pursue Christ, to follow the example that he he set for us in his life here, rejecting the things of old. Now, we will fall on occasion, but when you do, don't sit there and wallow in it. There's too many people who let bondage creep up on them because they're so ashamed of what they've done. Don't sit there in that bondage. That's not what God has for you. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and move forward because that's not who you are anymore. You hear that? I hope that sets some of you free. You are not characterized by sin. You are characterized by Christ. And too many of us are letting sin that should not reign in our body, reign over our body. We are walking with Christ. And he has enabled us to overcome everything. We are more than conquerors. Christ is victorious. He has promised us his victory. And we, because we are walking with him and in him, are victorious as well. Live in that. Live in that. I don't know about you guys, but this is not at this church. In a lot of churches, there are too many people who are so depressed as believers, depressed as Christians, not aware of the hope that they have. They see Christianity as this this list of things that we cannot do or we should not do. And every time I break one, I feel guilty. And this guilt just overwhelms me. And I'm walking through life in darkness. And that is not the life that God has given me. And John 10.10, Christ says that I have come that you may have life in abundance abundance. 
And I just don't see Christians living in this life of abundance. And I think this is the primary reason, because we don't realize that Christ has given us the ability to overcome sin. And even when we do sin, we shouldn't, we shouldn't live in it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And ultimately, what you're doing is you're, when you live that way, you're diminishing what Christ did on the cross, because what you're saying is that Christ's sacrifice isn't big enough to overcome what I just did. And it is. It is. Thirdly, we must realize our common fellowship. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes about this idea of unity. And he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. I think you talked about that verse last week a little bit. But here's the the really cool thing. If you are a follower of Christ, then you have the exact same experience that I have. Because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that called me from death to life, that called Lewis from death to life, that called Mark Lanier from death to life, that called each and every one of us from death to life. And all of us have that common experience. And all of us are in one church, one body, toward one goal. One goal. We are a family. We are a family. That's why there should be no division in the body of Christ. That's why that when people look at us, they will know us by our love, John writes. Because in that we love God, we also love people. Because those are the greatest commands. And implication of that, I'll come back to number four in a second, is that we must walk within our specific calling. Ephesians 2.10 says that after that, at 8 through 9, that is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift from God's, lest no man should boast. It says that you were created as a new creation for good works. We're talking about spiritual gifts today. Some of you probably just heard the pastor preach about the idea of spiritual gifts. And what I want you to know is that in that we all have the same universal calling, each of us has also been called to something specific. Every single person in here has a job that only you can do in furthering the kingdom of God. Only you can do it. And sometimes what happens is this, that we look at what God has gifted us with and what God has called us to, and we become jealous of what someone else is gifted with and jealous of what something else is, what God has called them to. Lewis just said a minute ago, he says he doesn't have the gift of teaching, but I could never, ever, ever do what Louis Miori does every day of the week, counseling people in desperate need. I couldn't do it. Now, does that mean that I'm jealous of him? No. I wouldn't want to do what he does. I love doing what I'm doing. But that's great because what we see here is an interaction of the body of Christ working together. I can't do what he does. He doesn't want to do what I do. 
And so we do what only we can do to further the body of Christ. And every single person has got to find a place where they can do that. Imagine if 5,000 people, 5,000 people the size of our church, each of us found something that only we could do. Imagine the change that we would see in Houston. Imagine if every single person who professed to be a follower of Christ started do some, doing something to impact the kingdom of God. Imagine what our world would look like. It's not as if this idea of God changing the world is that, that far-fetched of an idea. It really makes sense. The problem is us. Either because we haven't realized our calling or because we're not happy with it. Which really means probably that we're not content in the Lord. And not seeing how we can make the biggest impact. Every part is necessary. Paul writes about the body, uh, the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians and he says, What is a finger to tell a toe that it's not useful? What is an eye to tell an ear that it's not useful? Every part is necessary. If I didn't have my fingers, I wouldn't be able to talk. If you cut off my hands, I'd be a mute. You see that? And here's, the, here's, a, here's, a, here's another danger too, though. When you start doing something that is not your calling, you are stealing a blessing from another believer who has been called to do that. Not only that, you are walking in that, in that ministry in your own strength. And that moment, you were not walking the participatory life. You were doing that out of your own strength because God did not call you to that, therefore he has not empowered you for it. Who gets the glory for that? You do. You get the glory for that. God wants you to do what only you can do because chances are you don't feel like you can do it. And when you do do it, God gets the glory for it because he empowered you to do it. Finally, go back. This is a big deal for me. We must walk worthy of the calling received. In the first part of Ephesians 4, verse 1, he just says, I therefore, the prisoner in Christ, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. If we are going to be a people who say that we are empowered by Christ to live as Christ for the glory of Christ, then we better be sure that we are reflecting Christ accurately. Walk worthy of the Lord. There's this uh, term that Paul uses a lot, and you find it in Titus and a lot of his more pastoral epistles where he challenges people to walk blamelessly. Blamelessly. Now, blamelessly does not mean that occasionally you won't mess up. But it does mean that things that you know you should not do, that you don't do them. And I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier when we're talking about the wrath of God and about the love of God. I think far too often we as a, especially American culture, especially an American church, have begun to excuse far too many things. Now that does not mean that we need to be a people who beat down every single person with the Bible. But it does mean that we should be a people who challenge each other. As iron sharpened iron, the proverb says, to become more and more like Christ. God has called us to be a holy people. A holy people. And to do that, 
We need to be sure that we are walking as Christ walked. Not excusing every little thing that happens along our way, but committing to walk as we know we should walk. To glorify God who has given us so much and empowered us through His Son to do incredible, incredible things. So as a recap, we messed up. We were dead in our trespasses because we exchanged the glory of God for a lie, began to worship things that God created instead of the one who created them. But God, who was abundant in mercy, made us alive with the Messiah and empowered us to live as we were created to live. Not because of anything that we have done, but all because of his mercy and his grace, his goodness, his love that he had for us. And I hope that you walk away from here today encouraged because we have a hope that cannot be matched. We are blessed in ways that no other religion or people can even begin begin to feel blessed because we have a God, an almighty God who desires intimacy with us, gave himself for that intimacy and then walks alongside of us to ensure that intimacy. How incredible. And because of that, we no longer are condemnation. We are set free. We have joy unspeakable. We have purpose in life. But we also have responsibilities to walk as God called us to walk, to live in the calling that he called each and every one of us to, to not steal someone else's calling, and to walk worthy of the one who called us. Let's pray. Father, God, we love you and we just thank you for how you have provided for us. And God, I pray that each one of us would leave here rejoicing at the truth that we don't have to walk this thing alone, that we don't have to do this life alone, because God, if we did, it would seem so overwhelming. But God, you have given us your spirit and the example of Christ to do incredible, incredible things. And so God, I pray that every one of us in here would walk away different today, God, that we would begin to realize how you live within us and what that means for us. And God, we are a thankful people in this holiday of thanksgiving because of what you've done. God, and we give all the glory and honor to you in the name of all names, Jesus. Amen. Okay, folks, join me in putting your hands together to thank Jared for coming and blessing us. Let me just say this real quick before we go. If you are between the ages of 18 and 35, which as I look around, that's almost everybody in here, uh, and you would like to be plugged in to a midweek service where Jared actually preaches that service, the remnant service, every Thursday night, 7.30 in the chapel. If you're not between 18 and 35 and you know somebody, encourage them to attend. Michelle and I sneaked in the other night and kind of got past the people checking our IDs. <laughs> and uh, we talked about that service for a week. We were so blown away. So remnant service, 7.30 Thursday nights, chapel, Jared's the preacher. Uh, be there, be square. Have a great week, and class is dismissed.